podcast. This is a dialogue with those who are beacons of creative culture and insight, methodologies, and practice. Today, Jason and I welcome Amy Thibodeau. Amy is the director of UX for Shopify's platform team, led the launch of their design system Polaris, was one of the first content strategists on Facebook's design team, and has a tiny dog named Gus. Shopify is based in Ottawa with offices in Canada, uh, San Francisco, Berlin, and one in Lithuania. Amy, thanks so much for taking the time to join Jason and I today. Thanks. I'm really glad to be here. One of the things I notice I I do uh, each podcast, and it's not intentional, I think it's because I'm in Chicago and the weather here by and large is terrible, and I, I, I always ask about it. What's the weather like where you're at today? So I'm in Toronto today, and the weather is actually beautiful. It has been a terrible, terrible cold spring. The weather in Toronto, on the whole, since I've moved here in October, has not been great. But today it's beautiful. The sun is shining. There's not a wind, and uh, and it, you can actually feel the heat of the sun. Oh, that's fantastic. Are you are you um, in, in Toronto all the time, or are you traveling? Uh, so I'm based in the Toronto office, um, okay. but I do travel fairly frequently bef- between all of our offices. Got it. Got it. So uh, if you don't mind, Amy, I'll just jump right in. So Shopify, uh, I actually used uh, the product for a side business of mine, UX Shirts, and uh, it's a fantastic system. I'm really curious. Can you tell us a little bit about your role at the business? Sure. Yeah. So I'm the director of UX for Shopify's app and partner platform. Um, so what that effectively means is that I'm responsible for building the UX team that owns and sort of executes on the user experience for that part of the product area. Um, and, and what that effectively is, is um, people sign up for Shopify, merchants sign up to, for, to Shopify to do a variety of jobs. Um, they want to be entrepreneurs, they want to start a business, and uh, they need some support in doing all of those jobs. So. Um, the way that we think about it is that uh, some of the support that they need will be technical support. So that is in the form of apps that they can uh, download from our app store. And those apps can help them do any number of different things that, that they might want to do to run and grow their business. And then the other side of it is sort of the human services side. And that's really the partner platform side. So these are the people who are providing all kinds of different services that our merchants might need. So this can be anything from help design designing their their website, their shop. It can be help with SEO or it can be help with some kind of custom technical solution. Um, And so I'm responsible for all of the products that face our partners, our app developers, and also the experience that merchants have discovering and then using those different services. So is the platform team uh, a single silo or are you, I mean, how many products actually roll up the platform then? Um, it's definitely not a silo um, because we have a, we have a range of products. So from our app store to our uh, our our experience for to help merchants find services, um, but also because we are a platform, we really want to enable everybody who is creating product at Shopify to think about our platform. So um, at our most recent developer conference called Unite, we launched something called App Extensions, um, which is really the ability to integrate the functionality of apps into all different um, parts of Shopify. And and so in order for us to be able to do that, we really need to collaborate really closely with other teams so that they understand um, what the opportunities are for apps, what jobs apps help merchants do, um, so that they can 
can really understand and build those experiences. And of course, whenever we launch a new feature or a product, um, there are often APIs that are released as part of that. And those APIs are the things that allow our community of developers to build the app experiences that they create for merchants. Oh, wow. That, that's, that's fantastic. It sounds uh, kind of beautifully complex in that you have to maintain collaboration and communication. And uh, in, in that sense, how, how big is your team? So my team, which is made up of product designers, visual designers, researchers, and content strategists, is made up of about 25 people. Okay. Um, but we're part of a much larger uh, UX team that collaborates really closely together. Um, so, and, and we share a lot of rituals together. So, for example, we will have um, design critiques that are representative of people working on different things for different parts of the company. Um, and we're always, I think, looking for new and better ways of um, sort of reaching across our immediate area of concern to make sure that we're really thinking about building holistic experiences, you know, and and not creating a set of experiences that feel really distinct, but, but rather that sort of have an arc that go across them so that whether it's a merchant or an app developer or a partner, um, they don't feel the edges between the different teams that might be working on those experiences. So it's, I mean, clearly collaboration, um, collaboration sounds like it's absolutely uh, key to that process. If you are a spread across uh, numerous offices, not just in Canada, but all over the world, how do you maintain that level of collaboration? So everything's crystal clear about who's working on what, and you mentioned critiques. Uh, is that something that's done virtually or how, how do you handle that? Yeah, so a lot of our teams are organized so that most of uh, the people working on a particular product are located in the same office, uh, but we do travel a lot. So I'm back and forth to Ottawa and Montreal and even San Francisco and Waterloo uh, a fair amount, and those those people in those offices also travel. Um, we also have a cultural belief that we default to open internally. Um, and so people are really encouraged to share their roadmaps, to uh, share their project briefs, uh, to have open conversations in in fairly open Slack channels um, to share the issues where they're discussing things, just so that we um, create an environment where people can gather and gain all of the context that they need to make good decisions and to be able to make those decisions quickly. Um, and so I think that that sort of cultural value of, of default to open um, has really, really enabled us to give people a lot of ownership and also to set them up for success in terms of collaboration um, because they're really encouraged to, to share their work early, their work often, and to bring in multiple perspectives as they're thinking through a problem and, and deciding on the right solutions. That's beautiful. Those cultural sensibilities um, sound fantastic and very human-centered in nature, and that kind of is a very natural transition to my next question, which is Shopify's culture is written about quite a bit. It's very easy if you just type in Shopify culture, there's, there's copious results in Google. I'm curious about your take on the office culture and how it manifests itself daily at the office. Yeah, so I have a few, I think, really tangible examples of, of how Shopify's culture has kind of influenced and permeated into the daily life of, of, of my team um, and the office that I work in. So I mentioned earlier that Shopify gives employees a lot of autonomy and we want people to make decisions and, and take a lot of ownership. Um, and I think that one of the ways that we do that is by explicitly stating that we believe that 
culture and company culture is everyone's responsibility. Um, we certainly have a culture team who are the stewards of our culture, um, but we really empower everybody to look for opportunities to um, to build a good culture and to just take those opportunities. They don't have to ask for permission. So um, an example that I can give you is I work out of our newest Toronto office and it's a smaller space and we don't actually have a huge lunch area where we can sit together um, and eat lunch. Uh, and so what what was happening was people were picking up their lunch and they were going to their desks, which, you know, is fine. Sometimes people want to do that. But there were a group of people in the office and they, they really saw that as, as a missed opportunity to get to know each other and have those sort of social moments over, over breaking bread that um, can really build connection. So um, they didn't ask any permission. They just organized a set of lunch clubs where they effectively booked some meeting rooms, um, programmed some themes and invited anybody in the office to join. Um, and those have been really, really effective um, as a way of not just making lunch a, a social opportunity, but also um, they've introduced some opportunities for play. So some of these lunch clubs are based around playing board games. Um, and it's just been a really good opportunity for people to get to know each other on a, on a personal level a little bit better. And also, you know, get a break from their screen. So I think that's one of the examples that that cultural philosophy of everyone owns culture um, and and a lot of room to make autonomous decisions has factored in um, in the office that I work in. It's actually a beautiful example that you give. I don't know if you if you had a chance to listen to the other um, creative culture podcast thus far, but the last one that Jason and I did with was with uh, Veronica Fossa and her entire uh, business. Uh, model we factor is based around exactly what you said breaking bread getting people away from their viewports and just that bonding and that that act of the linger about pa pausing over food so people can connect at the most basic human level that that really the value of that cannot be trivialized Absolutely. I mean, in Toronto, we also do um, an event every, it's, I think it's every four weeks called Fancy Friday. And what that is, is um, instead of having lunch at the office, people self-organize and they go out together for lunch. Um, and they try different local restaurants. So it's great for the local economy. Um, it's great as a way of, of just trying different, different little places that you wouldn't try. And we really, really encourage people to try to pair up and join people that they don't work with in the day-to-day -day as a way of, again, expanding that sense of community, getting to know people, um, broadening their context about who the people are that work at Shopify um, and what they do. And um, it's been just a, a really lovely um, little ritual that we do here in Toronto. Yeah, Justin, I'm glad you mentioned Veronica. I just I would th I thought of the same thing as well. Whenever Amy was uh, Amy, when you were mentioning about just kind of sharing a meal together, something as simple as that can really make a big difference with the culture and also with your own personal empathy levels. I think that there's there's no greater way to build your empathy level than than to invite someone who is absolutely not like you to a cup of coffee and buy it for them. Absolutely, so, I, I love that. Um, so, Amy. I have a question for you. It's how does your role impact or leverage the culture at Shopify? Yeah. So when I think about our company values and our culture, I think of it as this sort of foundational layer or sort of set of table stakes that, that sits underneath how we operate. Um, but I think, Every team is really encouraged to form their own little rituals um, and and ways of working to to build a strong team. So, so for me, some of the things that have been really important um, is to 
in a really intentional way, look for ways to cultivate a comfort with vulnerability. And I think along with that psychological safety on my team. Um, And I think the reason that that really matters, particularly for creative teams, is we want people to feel comfortable offering opinions and having those kinds of challenging, passionate debates that really push ideas forward. Um, But I think what ends up happening is if if you don't have that sense of psychological safety, um, then it often ends up just being the same people who who share over and over again, or or people begin to feel that they can only share work once it's perfect. So um, some of the ways that I have intentionally cultivated that on my team is um, is to really be vulnerable myself at work. And um, what that means for me is is I, I bring my whole self to work. I, I talk about things that are challenging me. Um, I share my own work with my team. I'm the director of the team, but I bring work when it's early and ugly and evolving. Um, you know, I make mistakes all the time and I talk about them <laughs> um, pretty pretty openly with people. And I think when when people see leadership behaving in this way um, and, and embracing the fact that we're not looking for perfection, what we're looking for here are, are ideas and, and passionate conversation. Um, I think from a creative perspective, the environment becomes more enriching. The team begins to trust each other. And you get into those scenarios where, where people are really working together, collaborating and playing off of each other's ideas and growing their ideas together um, rather than feeling like they have to sort of protect themselves or protect those ideas. Um, So we do a lot of of that kind of thing. Um, We also do things like um, on my team, we often will decide to just go and use the risograph machine, which we have in one of our offices here in Toronto, just to create a a project together that is is outside of the scope of what we would normally do in our day-to-day um, UX work. Um, we'll go to a museum. We're lucky that we're located in downtown Toronto, so we can walk over to the Ontario Art Gallery and, and check out a museum. Um, we'll walk to the park. Um, it's making opportunities for those things that help people build a personal connection. And, um, and also, I think, spark their creativity um, in ways that they're they're maybe not having the chance to do as as part of their um, their everyday activity. Sounds like an awesome place to work. Um, we could probably end it right there if we were doing a recruiting <laughs> podcast <laughs> for Shopify. I mean, it just sounds incredible. I know there's more to come, but um, I was just thinking about you know just the the, the leadership factor. I, I I'm huge huge uh, on leadership and and as, having been at companies and, and organizations that that was lacking leadership, you realize how how critically that affects culture and and uh, you know and it's cancerous. You know, as Justin has stated in his wonderful book, you know it's. It's just a, a horrible thing. It's unhealthy, and you know, I, I think I, I'm a big quotes guy. I, I think I heard something, picked something up on LinkedIn. Somebody put something out there like, "A leader who doesn't listen to their people will have no one left to listen to them," right? And and like, there's another thing too. Like uh, Eric Meyer wrote a book called "Designed for Real Life." He wrote that with Sarah Walker Betcher, and and they do something. They did something in their um their kind of their their critique sessions where they actually have a designated dissenter 
where that person is like actually designated to like bring up issues and feel safe doing that without worrying about losing their job. And I think that that, that kind of openness and that kind of safety, it really does begin and end with, lead, with leadership. And it's just awesome to hear that you were, you were practicing that and it's, and it's a top-down thing over there at Shopify. So I was really inspired by that personally. Um, but I, I want to ask about um, office space because we know that you know there's a lot of organizations, and I worked at one, that thought if they just put a ping-pong table in, in the main area that mm-hmm. people will, have a, will love the culture. And that's just not true. Um, that's, a, that's a Band-Aid on a really larger wound that needs to be dealt with. And that, uh, again, that comes from the top. But how does, how does Shopify's office space uh, configuration play a role in the company's culture or even in the way your team works? So I think the thing that has been the most impressive to me about uh, Shopify's physical design is that it manages to really balance these open spaces. So, so you know, we don't all have offices. We don't have all, all have doors. Um, actually, none of us have doors. <laughs> um, so it is an open office, but there are a lot of little nooks and crannies and quiet spaces. And it's also an open office, but not like a huge warehouse open office. You know, I previously worked at Facebook and um, I worked in the Menlo Park campus. And, you know, what those often were is you would walk in and there was a floor that was almost the size of a football field, you know, and it was all open space. And so, you know, if you were somebody who maybe required a little bit of quiet or serenity or even solitude to do some deeper work or simply because you just felt overstimulated, there was really nowhere to go. Um, All of Shopify's offices are really designed with sort of collaboration, but also with respect to the fact that people doing creative problem solving need space and and that means actual physical space um, to kind of go away and be able to be alone if they want to be and to have some quiet and to have some space to do that deep work. Um, the offices are also really beautiful, um, but I think you could strip away all of the beautiful design and if you still maintained the balance that they've managed to find, I think you would still have a really effective space. Um, I think one of the things that that has been really meaningful to me is the way that that they've thought about things like um, noise, you know, and where do we place the kitchens with the espresso machines compared to, you know, the workspace where people are working? Um, how does the traffic flow through our spaces? Um, how does the light work? You know, it's great to have a big, beautiful window, but if you're cooking in the sunshine at three o'clock in the afternoon, um, it doesn't work very well. So they've, they've really managed to consider so many of these different elements. Um, Um, And I think not just created really beautiful spaces, but really, really functional spaces that the introvert in me really, really loves. (laughs) Mm, That sounds awesome. It's funny. My company just moved to a new office and it's an open uh, space. It's an open floor plan, uh, which is uh, obviously very common now, especially in tech. And I haven't worked there yet. I actually had ankle surgery the day they were moving over there. So I haven't, and I haven't even seen the office. Every time they had an office uh, visit, it was on a Wednesday, which I work from home Wednesday. So I haven't seen it yet, and I can't judge, but we've all had our certain 
little concerns as creatives, especially losing that that kind of privacy that you get that you kind of need when you're especially starting a project. Mm-hmm. You don't want to like publicize your crap, you know, kind of uh, drawings or you know your shapes and the screen and just kind of get because everyone's a, a critic, right? Everyone's opinion. And you, it's I don't know for about you guys, but it makes me feel a little nervous. I like to kind of do that stuff in private, and then when I feel it's a little more polished, I like to kind of to share it a little more. But um, I, anyway, uh, I'm going I'm going off on a tangent here. But how do you get away for for like that? deep work and and this is this is more of a selfish question but i i have a feeling other people are, are wondering too what's your your secret to kind of deep work in an open uh, office space yeah i think it is really that balance between having open spaces where uh, nobody is sort of behind a, a door that you've got a got a knock on but we also have a lot of meeting rooms and spaces that are effectively unbookable so at any point in the day you can go and find a, a quiet room um, there are a set of spaces in the Ottawa office where they're almost like these little cottages they actually look like little colorful cottages um, and they're unbookable but you can just wander into one of those spaces there's almost always one available and you can shut the door and you can spend a half an hour or six hours just in there um, working and, and, and sort of spending time either just alone or with a very small group of people. Um, and then the other thing that is nice about how they've designed the spaces is there are just a lot of little nooks. So even within the open office, you might find, a, for example, a couch that has almost like walls around it. So um, it'll be a couch where the back is built up it has like a little roof on it and the sides go all the way up to the roof. So when you're in this little sort of couch space, you really feel like you're in this this pod and it muffles the sound. You feel like you've got some privacy and um, and you can sort of spend that time alone. And, and we've got those little spaces built all throughout our offices. And I think that was a very, very intentional choice to give people places where they could go to really get away. Um, yeah. Wow. So when you mentioned the cottage, the Ridley Scott uh, fantasy movie fanboy in me kind of came alive. I uh, Have you guys seen Legend, the movie with Tom Cruise in like 1985? Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, <laughs> yes. I love it. Just brought me there. When you mentioned that, I was like, oh, I would love to. And then have like a Tangerine Dream soundtrack yeah. playing on, on loop. <laughs> oh, it sounds like paradise. Okay, sorry. <laughs> no, <laughs> I mean, uh, Amy, the, the balance you're talking about there, I mean, the open floor plan concept, which was everywhere, has now obviously the, the, the cracks at the seams there are beginning to show, or not even beginning to show, they're very well, well-known quantities at this point, the cracks in the seams that that kind of office space affords. So I think the balance of, if you're going to have an open floor plan layout, Having those little nooks uh, where people can can create in private, or I mean, those collaboration pods—I guess I'll call them—they're they're sometimes half circles, they're sometimes you know bench format with a little demi roof over it. That's big business now, and furniture designers—I mean, uh, companies—you know that that's a whole uh, segment of a market right now, making those pods, and sometimes they have TV screens in them and things like that. And the whole thing there with them is to uh, you know enable an open transfer of energy throughout any given space. They afford a degree of um, privacy, but they also are made, you know, so people can kind of be transient and move in and out of those spaces. Um, so it, it's awesome to hear, you know, that Shopify um, has those on premises. It doesn't, it doesn't surprise me in the least. Yeah, and I mean, I should say too that we have a team of people who are dedicated to working on the design and improvement and just general thoughtfulness of our physical spaces. Um, these are people who are on staff. You know, it's not 
that we just decide to, you know, hire an architect or a designer mm -hmm. and then we, we launch a space and then we're done. Um, I think there's a lot of acknowledgement that the evolution of these spaces is, is continual. And, and that's reflected in the fact that we have a team of people who are thinking about things like, um, you know, the aesthetics, also the physical flow of people, ergonomics, light sound, and also accessibility, you know, um, I have a lot of colleagues who have uh, either just gone or have just come back from maternity leave, for mm -hmm. example, and we want to make sure that, that they have spaces where they can go to um, to pump breast milk or to feed their children mm -hmm. or um, or to, to get away. And um, and so it's something that I think is, is in process of evolution, but it's definitely something that we take seriously enough that we have a team who is completely responsible for thinking about it and working on it and continually improving it. That is uh, truly human-centered in, in practice uh, rather than just lip service that some businesses give. I mean, that, I mean, if someone needs to go take a shot of insulin, like you said, if there's a, a new mother who needs to pump breast milk, I mean, those spaces, if you just put yourself in the mindset of someone else, what would someone want who needs privacy in that scenario? It informs these solutions so organically and beautifully. Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, dialing back a little bit, Amy, into your process uh, proper, we talked about the, the business's workspace and how the business supports uh, employees, and, the, and those are uh, phenomenal practices that you have in play. For your team proper, how do you ensure that your team feels supported or inspired or uh, that they're given the tools to thrive and succeed in the work that they're doing? Yeah, so for me, I think it's it's a balance of, of a number of things. So I think at a team level, I think it's making sure that we have enough rituals to bring us together so that we're collaborating across our team because we have about 22 people across design, research, and content strategy just in my team right now. And so not those people don't all work together. And I think as our team continues to grow and it may be harder and harder to get to know one another on a personal level. It's important to create some of those opportunities and rituals, not just for us to get together to learn from each other and to make sure that we're aligned, um, but also, I think, to make sure that um, that we share some of the same foundational principles and, and beliefs in terms of how we're approaching our work. Um, for me, in order to be able to scale a team, it means that um, I cannot be a bottleneck. <laughs> um, I can't be involved, nor do I want to be, in in every or even most of the decisions that the people on my team are making on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and so the way that I approach that is um, making sure that people understand what is really important to me, um, both from a practical perspective, what are the projects that I really do want to have more eyes on, um, but also from a principal perspective. So what are the different ways that we approach our work? Um, do we do we all agree about that? Do we have a shared understanding? Um, because when we have that shared understanding, it means that I can really step back and trust the really, really smart people who are on my team to to make the kinds of decisions and, um, and also the trade-offs that that we've hired them to make. Um, and I think the other piece of it is being really intentional about encouraging people to own their own development effectively. Um, so that may mean for somebody seeing a speaking coach, if for example, they want to um, 
start giving talks at conferences or or give even give internal talks but maybe who don't have that confidence or who have never really spoken before to you know going to a, a course or a class to build a technical skill um, to attending a conference to even visiting a, a city or a location where people are doing the kind of work that they're interested in doing uh, who they can learn from so we do have this um, concept called own your own development and I think Fundamentally, that's a great thing. But I think as a leader, it's really incumbent upon me to to make sure that I am uh, really encouraging people to take advantage of that and and to also encourage them to take advantage of it in in ways that I can see them stretching that, I, you know, ways that I can see as an opportunity for them. Um, and so I'm pretty mindful about that. Um, and one of the things that I do is everybody on my team, including myself, and I share these with my team. So we set goals every sort of six months. Um, so our first set of goals are geared towards Unite, which is our um, annual developer conference that just happened at the beginning of May. Um, and our second set of goals will take us towards the end of the year. And what I ask them to do is to make sure that one of of three goals is really about personal development. And um, and I also do the same thing and I share my goals with the entire team and I make sure that all of the leads on my team, so all the people who are leading people um, are also asking this of their direct reports and that they're having these conversations, um, that they're checking in about the, the um, evolution of those goals and how people are doing at meeting those goals um, to the extent that we actually put the goals at the top of all of our one-on-one -on -one documents. So when we set our agendas for our one-on-ones with our direct reports, um, at the very top of that document all the time are the three goals for the for the moment. Um, and so it just really encourages, I think, people to to talk about those things and revisit them and, and uh, not just set goals and then kind of forget about them because you get busy in the day-to-day -day of life um, and making sure that one of those goals is really focused on personal development. Well, lots of um, incredible uh, nuggets there, uh, Amy. That one I'd really like to um, kind of uh, shine a light on for a second is the simple act of getting out of the talent's way. So you're hiring these brilliant people and it's, 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 it seems like something that should be a no-brainer for a lot of businesses or managers, but it's it's a non-trivial thing to hire people and to not um, not not command them to do your bidding. So you're you're hiring brilliance, and then you're you're letting them thrive and do what they're hired to do. So I think what I've realized as my role has expanded is that. Even um, when I want to be a micromanager, and I have those instincts, just like everybody else does from time to time, um, I cannot possibly scale a team the way that I need to scale a team if everybody is feeling like they have to check in with me all the time. Um, and so there's there's obviously a huge element of it that I, I do fundamentally believe it's the right the right thing to do. And I fundamentally believe that smart people don't want to stay on a team where they actually can't have ownership and they they can't have the freedom to make decisions um, and to really bring the skills that we hired them to do to the team and to the, to the projects that they're working on. But also from a purely selfish and pragmatic perspective, um, you just can't get anything done if you are sort of a um, like a one-person team where um, you have one person or a few people who want to make all of the decisions all the time. And I think the other piece of it is that you know, we talk a lot about inclusion and diversity of thought, and I think diversity of thought is really, really important, but you can build the most um, diverse team in the world, and if you're not actually empowering them to make 
decisions and to have ownership, then um, you're actually you're actually not benefiting from any of that diversity or diversity of thought on your team. And so, um, like I said, I sometimes struggle with tendencies to be a micromanager. I think like most people do, but I really try to be self-aware. Um, and I also really encourage my team to call me out um, if they notice those tendencies kicking in. Mm. Um, because because it's just it's it's not how I can possibly grow this team uh, the way that I need to be able to grow it. Um, yeah, yeah. No, I think fundamentally, you know, my job is to ask good and challenging questions, um, and and to to push the work forward that way, not by being the person who needs to give permission or or give all of the solutions. Um, and we do hire really, really, really good people um, who who on the whole are making great decisions and also are, are thinking about things in ways that I quite frankly would never uh, consider. <laughs> uh, they're really push- pushing my thinking forward and pushing the product forward. And, and I think that's because they have the space to do it. Um, not because I have sort of in, uh, endowed any kind of brilliance upon them um, that I have. Um, it's that I have a really, really smart team who, who have the ability to, to, to make the decisions that they think are the right ones. Yeah. I love the things you just shared, Amy. I mean, I love everything you're sharing, but especially just love the empowerment part. Um, have you guys seen the Netflix original show with Jason Bateman called Ozark by chance? I have, have you not seen, seen or that. heard of it. I've I heard, of, heard it. of it. Oh, yeah, I've heard Ooh, of it. Yeah. Okay. I want to tell a story, but it's there's a little bit of a spoiler in there. Um, is that okay? You guys? Yeah. Is there you cool with it, <laughs> listeners? <laughs> oh wait, I can't hear them yet. Um, I'm gonna tell it anyway. They're, in the show, it's it's really great. It's actually really smart, um, especially if you like uh, shows like Breaking Bad, that kind of thing. Um, just really cool. But anyway, in this show, um, there's a character named Ruth, and she's basically like the local crook. Her and her family. Her family's like the the criminal family, um, and she's sort of the mastermind of kind of some of their plans. Well, she basically like she wants to kill. Marty Bird, the guy that, that, that uh, Jason Bateman plays. She wants to kill him. He's the lead uh, character in this story. And um, because he ha- comes upon, upon a lot of money. So she wants to kill him, but, uh, but he, he actually ends up giving her a second chance. He, he actually entrusts her and empowers her to even run one of his businesses. Like, and, and you see like that relationship. You see that connection happening. And, and she actually has a total change of heart and ends up completely respecting him and protecting him even to the point of saving his life all because of that trust and that empowerment of even somebody that you would just go wow I would not trust her I would not empower this person you know and of course that's an extreme example and of course it's a story but there's a lot of truth to that in in company culture when you trust and empower your people you can't lose you can only win and so I just love that and so another thing too is that you might be saving your life uh, you know, being a leader. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Whoa, that guy. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Sorry, that kind of went into a different direction. But no, I just I, I just love that. And, and so I just I really wanted to speak to that. That's so important. And I think it's just um, I, you don't see it. You don't seem to see it enough, I think, in a lot of company cultures. That's probably why, you know, Shopify's culture is talked about so much and, and shining so much. So I really like that. 
Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, one of one of the metaphors that we throw around a lot internally is is the idea of a trust battery, um, and it gives people, I think, something to uh, visualize when when we talk about trust. But it's really, um, is your trust battery full with people, or is your trust battery empty? And we kind of go into it with the assumption that you have a full trust battery. You know, I'm going to trust you. Um, I'm going to make sure that you have the context and information that you need to be able to move quickly and make the right decisions. Um, but my default position is that I'm I'm going to trust you. And and so far, I honestly, everybody on my team, um, everybody who I've given that trust to has risen to the occasion um, and has actually surprised me in ways that, that I couldn't have anticipated. That's awesome. So, T- tell us about what being an ephemeralist means to you, Amy. I, <laughs> in doing some research, I, I noticed that that's kind of an important thing, and I actually had to Google that because I, I had never, I never heard that before that term. And um, and I also kind of started when I was reading the definition, which I, let me just share what I found. It's uh, I'll, I'll just touch briefly. It's an ephemeralist is anyone who tries to do more with less. An ephemeralist loves to find ways to accomplish more in their day-to-day life while spending less, wasting less, and suffering less. I love that. There's more to it, but to me, it sounds like a minimalist. What's the, what's the difference, and what does ephemeralist mean? To you? <laughs> so, so for me, I think of the word ephemeral, um, which is effectively something that lasts for a very short time, something that is kind of mm-hmm. fleeting, um, something that you know gives you that little. Um, that little kick of nostalgia that kind of comes into the into the pit of your your stomach. Um, so so one of the examples that I often use because it gives me that little stomach kick is um, Judy Garland singing "Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas." Every time I hear that, I think about when I was a child and and the way it felt and the way Christmas felt and and just certain experiences that just no longer exist, you know, um, I'm, I'm an adult and, um, I will never have those experiences ever again. And while I get great sort of feel great warmth and, and have great pleasure in, in looking back on those experiences, it's, it's with a little sort of bit of wistfulness and, and a little bit of nostalgia. So, um, so it's things like that. It's things like, you know, when the leaves are changing in the fall and and they're about to fall off, but for about a week, they're perfect, you know? Um, right now in Toronto, we've got the cherry blossoms on a bunch of the trees and, you know, those are here. They're beautiful and they smell great, but they're going to be gone as soon as the first storm hits. <laughs> um, and so it's, for me, it's about kind of noticing the moment that I'm in um, because it's fleeting, you know, and um, and and it's changing and it will never be the same again. So it's it's about kind of collecting those moments and also just noticing them and um, and being mindful. And it keeps me grounded a little bit in the present while also, I think, feeling a bit romantic and wistful about the past. Oh, wow. I love that. That just that made me feel good. What a great that, honestly, <laughs> yeah. it really did. I'm like I, I'm. It's like I have some warm warmness in my like. But they, the Mormons call it a burning in the bosom. I feel like I have a little burning in the bosom right now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, it just made me think about like, um, you know, when you take pictures. Like I used to before I started a podcast. Like I used to take Instagram pictures, and like that was kind of I was trying to build like a following there. And and there's things I took. I live in Colorado, and there's like a lot of old shacks and stuff around, and. And and I would I, I particularly like uh, photographing those, and there's a couple that I can think of right now that I'm so glad I took a picture of them because they 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 faded 
They, one of them was demoed. It's gone. And it had some really interesting, it was an old house that was abandoned. And, and I actually went in there and almost got stuck in the snow one day trying to get in there to take a picture. Um, but it, it had like all this graffiti inside that I would have never seen had I not wandered in there and taken pictures of it. And then a few months later, it was demoed. It's gone. And there's another really just beautiful shack right uh, in front of the Pikes Peak Mountain range. And I captured, captured this picture. And then uh, with our winds that we had out east, we have the 60, 70 mile an hour winds. It's gone. So I, I just feel like it, there's a lesson in that, too, listeners, just uh, about kind of maybe we should all be a little more ephemeral. Maybe we should all just kind of because we're so and I'm not going to get into a soapbox about how I feel about smart <laughs> devices and addictive apps. But maybe we should put those down a little bit more often and, and actually just kind of enjoy the, the leaves changing. Enjoy yes. those moments with our families and things like that. OK, I'm, I'm starting to get emotional. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned Judy That's, Garland. That was it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I know. Gosh. And have yourself a merry little Christmas. I mean, exactly. Doesn't even matter. Like I, I don't really celebrate Christmas. You know, apart from the 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 tinsel and stuff um but that song it just gets me every time. <laughs> yes. Oh, I love it. Jason, uh, you normally wrap things up for us. If you have any closing thoughts you'd like to share. I do, yeah. I took a couple notes during our wonderful time together, Amy, and uh, here's just a couple closing thoughts. These are my these are my Springer clo- final thoughts, my Jerry Springer final thoughts. Uh, forgive, <laughs> hopefully, a lot more positive and enriching. Forgive the Uber cliche, but there's no I in team. Success comes from the people who create it together. Share a lot of rituals together. Shared experiences build genuine connection. Luke W. said at my User Defenders podcast live at Event Apart Denver recording, he said something really cool. He said, you're not a team until you've been through some crap together. The more time together, the stronger the team, the stronger the team, the stronger the results. Openness and a sense of safety in the culture begins and ends with the leadership. Empower, and this is finally, empower smart, self-starting people, and you can't lose, you can only win. Humans are so much more than resources. Amy, if someone wanted to look into how to be a part of Shopify's incredible culture, how would they go about doing that? Yeah, we've got uh, shopify.com forward slash careers is our careers website. And there's a lot of information there um, about our teams, our culture, and also the roles that we're specifically hiring for across all of our offices. Um, And I think like the interesting thing that you'll notice when you look at that website is it's really formed around... um, like us applying to you. So for for great candidates, like we understand that it's not just about you selling us on yourself. We want to sell you on us and the opportunity at Shopify. Um, I think people talk about this sometimes, like you're interviewing the company as much as they're interviewing you, or at least people should go into interviews with that mindset. Um, And so that's uh, kind of the concept that this careers website is based around. Love that. I've actually, uh, uh, one of my subchapters in my book is called The Mutual Interview. That, that's a common dialogue, and it's not just you getting grilled. I mean, you should have questions prepared for them, and the, you know, it, it, they're, on, they're as much on the line as you are as a candidate. So that, that, that's great to hear.